0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. And well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope that you do, would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 9, Joshua 9? And as you're turning there, you know, I was thinking this past week about a mission trip that I had taken several years ago with our church down to Panama City, Panama. And I had an awesome week there, uh, sharing with people about the Lord. But one night, we went to this little restaurant. It was this little hole-in-the-wall, you know, place. And, of course, the menu was uh, was in Spanish. And so, you know, you're kind of trying to decipher it, trying to figure out, you know, what you should get. And, and, but the waiter is, is coming down the table, you know. And so you realize, like, I'm out of time. I just got to pick something. And so, you know, I just, I just kind of went with my gut. You know, I went with my NSYNC. I saw something that kind of looked like it might be an Italian uh, sandwich. And I ordered that. And then just for good measure, you know, I threw in a, a milkshake. And, and this... This really circles back to Pastor Aaron's question at the greeting time, right? It's all coming together uh, because he heard the message in the first hour. But uh, I think in the, in the first hour, I mistakenly said it was a raspberry milkshake. I was thinking about it. It was actually a blackberry milkshake. And so I had that sub. I had that milkshake. You know, sometimes when you, uh, you know, you go with your gut like that and you, and you pick something to eat, you know, it works out really, really well. And then, you know, there was this time. And... <laughs> Uh, It did not work out so well. In fact, it is the sickest that I have ever been outside of the United States. And uh, I got so sick from that meal, I'll I'll spare you the details, but several days later, I ended up having to go and and get an IV to get some fluids put back in me because of that. And uh, and so it was just a case where, you know, I went with my gut, I paid for it with my gut as well, and uh, it did not go well. You know, you know the story that was just read for us in Joshua 9 is a case where the people of God had a decision to make. Uh, they didn't pray about it. They didn't ask uh, the Lord about it. Uh, they just went with their gut. They went with their instincts and they made a decision. And it really didn't turn out that well for them either because they got badly fooled in the process. And even though this is a story of something that happened more than 3,000 years ago, it is so relevant, so applicable to our lives today and the way that we make decisions. But before we get into that, I really just want us to walk through the story to hear what happened as we read it together. You know, up until this point in Joshua, we've been reading about individual battles against individual cities, like the city of Jericho, the city of Ai. But in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, we read about this coalition of kings uh, from all over the land of Canaan who were coming together uh, to conspire to attack Joshua and the Israelites. And and really those two verses at the beginning of chapter 9, and and then there's a set of verses at the end of chapter 12 that kind of serve like the bookends of this section of the book of Joshua, from Joshua 9 to Joshua 12. Because the beginning of Joshua 9, we read about these kings who wanted to wage war against Joshua and the Israelites. At the end of chapter 12, we read about how that worked out for them. Uh, And it didn't work out well for them because Joshua was given victory by the Lord over all uh, of those kings. And we'll read more about that next week. But in any event, while most of the residents of Canaan were preparing for war against the Israelites... Uh, There was a group of people within the land of Canaan who had a different strategy. And these people were the Gibeonites who were from the city of Gibeon. Uh, We find out in verse 17, there were a few other smaller towns that were located right in the vicinity of Gibeon who also went along with them in their plan. And what the Gibeonites did was unexpected. It it was, as the text says in verse 3, crafty or, or clever. In the same way that Joshua had used a ruse in his last battle against the city of Ai, the Gibeonites do a little pretending here as well. And what these guys do is they send in a few men who pretend to be ambassadors who have traveled from a far country. Uh, and to make it more convincing, everything that they bring with them is old. They're wearing old clothing. They're wearing old worn out shoes. They have old sacks. They have old wineskins. Their food is even old and dry and crumbly and moldy. And, and all of it is meant to convey, we've been traveling for a really long time to get here. And then in verse six, they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant With us. Now you have to give these guys some credit. I mean, this was a bold play to walk right up to Joshua, right into the middle of the Israelite camp, and and to try to deceive them like this. Because if this didn't go well, right, if they did not believe them, it surely would have meant their death. Uh, I love verse seven because the narrator kind of lets us in on who these guys really were, right? He says, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? Now, the Hivites were one of the same nations that are listed above in verses 1 and 2. There were other Hivites who were gathering together to make war against Joshua. But here's this little subset of the Hivites who, again, have a different strategy, and the Israelites don't realize that that is who they're talking to. Now, as it says there in verse 7, you know, it isn't like it didn't pass through their minds that maybe they were being fooled. They they even had that suspicion, right? And they verbalized that suspicion. They said, well, what if we find out you guys are, you know, from right here? What if we find out you live right among us? And and so they said that, but in the end, they were still deceived by them. Joshua questions them and asks who they were, where they came from. And then in verses 9 through 11, this is what they said. From a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who were at Ashtoreth. Therefore, our elders and the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So in their speech to Joshua, they begin to talk about the God of Israel, the Lord God Almighty. And they they, they speak about his victories that he had won. And it's hard to tell as you read these words whether they were being sincere in their praise of God or whether they were using mere flattery. But either way, Joshua certainly loved to hear them speak like this about the Lord God of Israel. But one thing you'll notice is when they list out the victories that God had given his people, they only mention the ones that were in the distant past. They mention the victory over Sihon and over Og, victories that happened on the other side of the Jordan River. What they don't mention, which we know from verse 3 that they already knew about, were the more recent victories, the victories that they had just won over Jericho and over Ai, but they don't mention those victories on purpose because that would have blown their cover. If they really were from far away, they wouldn't have received that news by now. And they would have been traveling this whole time and, and wouldn't have known about those victories. And then in verses 12 and 13 is the real kicker. This is where they break out their evidence uh, for the fact that they came from far away. They said, this bread of ours, we took hot for our provisions. Uh, It just came right out of the oven, right before we walked out of our houses. And now look at it. Look how dry and moldy and crumbly it is. In verse 13, these wineskins which we filled were new. See, they're torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of a very long journey. I don't know. I mean, maybe their fake shoes and clothes and and, and bags were very convincing. Maybe the uh, Gibeonite theater costume department had done an excellent job in providing them with these props. But either way, the Israelites uh, went for it, hook, line, and sinker. And then verse 14 is really the key verse of our text, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. But it says they took some of their provisions, but the thing that they didn't do was ask God what they should do. And in verse 15, Joshua rushes right on into making a binding covenant in the name of the Lord God with these people. And we don't know all the terms of the covenant. At least one of the terms was that the Gibeonites got to live. Another one of the terms was Uh, Perhaps similar to becoming a nation in NATO, right? They would uh, share military responsibilities to defend each other in the case of an attack. And that actually comes to play in the very next chapter in uh, Joshua chapter 10. It probably goes without saying, but what they were doing in making this treaty with the Gibeonites was wrong. While they were permitted in Deuteronomy 20 to make treaties with people who lived outside of the land of Canaan... They were expressly forbidden in the law of Moses from making treaties with the Canaanites. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, this is what Moses had told them. Look at these words. He said, When uh, the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittite and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Remember, this was God's judgment upon the wicked inhabitants of the land of Canaan. He says this, you shall make no covenant with them or show mercy to them. In the next few verses right after that, Moses gives them one of the reasons for that. He tells them, if you allow the Canaanites to remain there in the land with you, you're going to end up intermarrying with them. Uh, you're going to end up worshiping some of the same false gods and the detestable practices that they do in the worship of those false gods, which is, in fact, what did end up happening with the Canaanite population that they did not drive out of the land. And and so uh, we read this and we realize that what they were doing was wrong. And yet, of course, at this time they were deceived. They thought that they didn't live in the land, that they lived outside of it. But in verse 16, we don't know how, but somehow three days later, they found out that they had been conned, that the Gibeonites were actually their near neighbors, that they lived in the city of Gibeon, just a few miles northwest of Jerusalem, right there in the promised land with them. And so the Israelites move camp and they travel to the city of Gibeon and they confront them and the people of God want to attack them. But the leaders stop them from doing that. And the leaders tell them, no, we can't do that because we made a covenant in the name of the Lord, our God, and it's a covenant that cannot be broken or the wrath of God will come upon us for breaking that. And as it turns out, they were exactly correct in that because many years after this, King Saul actually did break the covenant with the Gibeonites and the wrath of God did come upon his people for that. And King David had to act in order to set things right again. And Joshua confronts them in verses 22 and 23, and he says to them, basically, why did you lie to us? Why did you say that you were from far, far away when you live like two seconds away from us? Now, Joshua did not kill them. He honored the covenant, but he did tell them that they were cursed to be servants from that day forward. They would be like a cross between uh, Bobby Boucher and Paul Bunyan. They would be water boys and woodcutters for the people of God. And that's how the story ends in Joshua 9. The Gibeonites pull off this ruse and it works. And they get to live and they trick the Israelites into making a covenant with them. But they end up being their servants from that time on. And what can we take though from this story in the word of God? How can we apply it to our lives? I think there's a whole lot of application for us in this. I actually think this, I think we can see ourselves in both sets of characters that are in this story, both the Israelites and the Gibeonites. first of all, we can see ourselves, I think in the Israelites because church, oftentimes we are the Israelites. See the error that the Israelites made in this story is a very simple one. It's very plain and clear in the text. Again, the key verse is verse 14, where we read this. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. You know, a lot of times in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, when you're reading stories like this, it's, it's actually rare that the narrator will just come right out and tell you what the moral of the story is. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we're called upon with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret the text and to arrive at what that principle is. But here, the narrator does not hide it from us at all. And he comes right out with his own critique of what the Israelites did. And he writes these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, plainly sets it before us. This is what they did wrong. They did not inquire of the Lord when they made this decision. You know, as one person put it, that's the real tragedy in this story. That that nobody and the entire people of God, not the people, not the leaders, not the elders, not even Joshua himself, nobody even stopped for even a moment to ask the question, what would God have us to do in this situation? And instead, they just rushed right on ahead and made this covenant that should not have been made. But, you know, I'm afraid we probably should not pick up stones and begin to throw them at the Israelites here. Because oftentimes in our own life, we do the very same thing. Just like the Israelites, we also sometimes go with our gut and err by making decisions without seeking the Lord's direction. How many times have you and I done that in our lives? When we make a life decision based on whatever we think is gonna be best, but we don't ask God about it, but we don't seek any godly counsel about it or any direction about it. We just do whatever we think looks like a good decision at the time. How many times in your life has that ended up blowing up in your face? If you're anything like me, it happened a lot of times, probably more times than you can even count. I was thinking this past week about a few of the ways that we do that. A few of the ways that we do like they did here, we go with our gut and, and we don't seek the Lord. One way we do that is we just do whatever our heart says is right. You know, we even talk like that, right? You know, you're, you have to make a decision and, and somebody will say to you, we know what does your heart say? You know, what, what, what does your heart tell you is the right thing to do? And that, that sounds like really great advice, except for, to put it bluntly, it's the worst possible way that we could ever make a decision in life. And that's because of what the Bible clearly says in Jeremiah 17, 9, where we read this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, the Bible says our hearts are sinful. The Bible says our hearts will lie to us. Our hearts will deceive us. And so the last thing we want to do is trust our hearts. And yet often that is what we fall into. Another thing we do is this, we trust that what we see and what we hear represents the whole truth of the situation. Well, that's what the Israelites did here, isn't it? They saw the moldy bread. They saw the worn-out clothes and the worn-out shoes. They heard the story about how far these people had traveled. And they thought that represented the entire truth of the situation. Case closed. Uh, They're telling us the truth. This is what we need to do. And, And yet the entire thing was a lie. Now, listen, obviously there are times in life where we need to be able to rely on our powers of observation that God has given us to make a decision, right? You open up the refrigerator door and you pull out a gallon of milk and you smell it and you can, think, you, you can tell right away that thing turned rancid. Unless you want to have a blackberry milkshake incident after that, you need to pour that out, right? And so there are times like that where we rely on our powers of observation and make a decision, and yet we also realize that the physical world is not the only world that there is, that there is a spiritual world, and that we have a spiritual enemy who is actively seeking to deceive us. In the same way that the Gibeonites were trying to deceive the people of God, we have an enemy who is working in this world to deceive the people of God. Now, very rarely, right, is he going to come out and say, that last message that you just heard was brought to you by courtesy of the Prince of Darkness. Right? And so we say, well, that's not the devil. I mean, that's just the New York Times. <laughs> you know, that's not the devil. That's just my Aunt Sally. That's not the devil. That's just my friend Bob on Facebook. And yet, I love Bob even though I don't know him, but, but very often the people that we're listening to when we read those messages and we read those newspaper articles and we're listening to those things on, online and on our TV screens, that the messages that are being given to us are not God's truth. They're distortions of truth and sometimes they're outright lies. And we're being deceived. We have an enemy that's seeking to do that. And we need God's wisdom to be able to discern the difference between truth and error. A lot of times, you know, what we do is we fail to truly seek God's wisdom in prayer. You know, that's what they did here. And I I want you to know, you know, that Joshua and the Israelites had access to the wisdom of God. In fact, in in the law of Moses, they were told, they were instructed what to do in situations like this when they didn't know what to do, that they were to call for the high priest and God had given the high priest a means of being able to determine the will of God in a decision that needed to be made. And so they had access to that wisdom of God, but they didn't utilize it. As followers of Christ who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we have access to the wisdom of God as well. In fact, God has promised us that in James chapter 1. Look at this verse. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, how many of us ever lacked wisdom, right? We all do. If any of you lacks wisdom, here's what you need to do. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is God's promise to us. If we lack wisdom and we turn to God and we ask him for that wisdom, it is there for the taking. He will give it to us. But I think a lot of times we don't really seek God's wisdom. Sometimes we're just content to mention things to God in prayer. And so when I mentioned that, but we're not asking, we're not seeking, we're not knocking on the door and waiting patiently until the Lord answers us and gives us his wisdom. Sometimes I think we just pray about things because we want to be able to say we prayed about them when we've actually already made up our minds what we're going to do. And we're not really listening to God's voice at all. You know, here's a good question to to ask yourself when you're facing a decision. Are you really open to God changing your plans? When you bow your knees and you pray and you spend that time with God and you're seeking him about a decision, but you're already kind of wanting to go a certain way, are you open to God just totally saying, you know what, scrap your plan altogether. I don't want you to do that. I've got something else I want you to do. I want you to wait. Are we really opening, open to the Lord redirecting us and guiding us with his wisdom? Another way we go with our gut is we fail to test the decisions that we make against the word of God. You know, this is a good principle to just always remember, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, listen, he will not tell you anything today that contradicts what he's already said in his word yesterday. Amen. He will not tell you anything today that contradicts what he's already said in his word yesterday. And so we need to test the decisions that we're making against his revealed will that he's already given to us in the perfect, timeless word of God and make sure that it lines up. But sometimes we do the exact opposite. Sometimes we go with our gut because we actually seek out worldly wisdom instead of godly counsel when there's a decision that we need to make. Uh, I've even heard people say things like that. I've heard people say, you know what, I don't want to go to some goody two-shoes Christian and hear what they have to say about this. I, I want to go to somebody that, that's really in the world. I want to go to somebody who, who's been where I am and, and somebody who's experienced it. And, and, and what I want to say when I hear that is, first of all, Christians are not perfect people. We're just forgiven people by the grace of God. And there's probably a Christian in your sphere of influence who has been exactly where you are in their past. And the other thing I would say is that in your situation right now, you don't need to hear worldly wisdom. You don't need to hear what the world would tell you to do because that path leads to destruction. What you need to hear is the wisdom of God. And you need to be seeking out counsel from people who will give you that wisdom that comes from God and from his word. And when we fail to do that, when we do like the Israelites did here and we don't seek God about decisions, I would even go so far as to say this. I I think when we do that, we're living like practical atheists. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? An atheist is somebody who does not believe that God exists, of course. As Christians, we do believe that God exists. But listen, when we as Christians make important life decisions, but we don't even ever consult God about it. We don't ask any other believer for any godly counsel. We we don't look in his word at all. We don't pray about it at all. All we do is look at what we see with our eyes and we make a decision. How is that decision-making process any different from the person who's an atheist? And sometimes I'm afraid that we do that. We make decisions as if we don't believe that God exists. But as believers, we do believe he exists we believe he dwells within us in the person of his Holy Spirit, that his wisdom is available to us in his word and in prayer. And so because of that, our decision-making process should look very different from the world. And the Bible gives us such a clear alternative, a beautiful passage that I love so much that I feel like could just be written right over top of Joshua 9 because it's the remedy to what Israel did wrong in this situation. It's a passage I know many of you know by heart. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. If you know it, say it with me. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Sometimes we overcomplicate the Christian life, but in a sense, it's very, very simple. We just need to trust in God and not in ourselves. But we need to look to him, Trust in him, follow him, go where he tells us to go. And when we do that and we submit every decision to the Lord, he promises us, I will direct your paths. I will make your paths straight in front of you and you don't need to worry or fear about anything else. You know, another way that we're like the Israelites when we fail to do that, when we trust and lean on our own understanding is we're gonna be in for a rude awakening. You know, that happened to them, didn't it? Three days after this, they they find out about uh, this uh, treaty that had been made was made in false pretense that these people actually did live right there in the land of Canaan and they had been deceived. Now they realize they had violated God's word in Deuteronomy chapter seven, made a covenant that they weren't supposed to make. And as a result of that, now, as one person said, there's this little Canaanite enclave that's, that's right here in the middle of the promised land that would be there forever that they couldn't do anything about. Now, now God had a plan in and through that, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But but at this point, There were consequences to them for their foolish decision. And you know what? The truth is, there will be consequences for us, even as believers, when we make foolish decisions in our life without consulting the Lord's will about that decision. And you say, well, pastor, doesn't God forgive us when we confess our sins to him? Absolutely, 100% and praise God that he does that his mercy covers us and his grace covers us. But you know what? God has not promised. He has never said to us that he will remove every consequence in this life from the sinful, foolish decisions that we make. And sometimes those consequences remain. Sometimes they remain for a few hours, a few days, a few weeks. Sometimes they remain for a lifetime. If a person who drinks too much gets behind the wheel of a car and ends up taking the life of an innocent person, can God forgive that person for that? Absolutely he can. But likely that person will end up spending many years, if not the rest of his life on earth behind bars as a natural consequence for the foolish decision that he made. And when we lean on our own understanding, oftentimes we'll be in for a rude awakening when we wake up and realize that we have been Deceived. Very quickly, let me mention this because this is actually a positive thing. This is a way that we should want to be like the Israelites in this story. It's this, when we do make a foolish and rash decision, we must own our sin and accept our consequences and not add to the folly of our sin by sinning even more. And when the Israelites learned that they had been fooled, the people were upset with the leadership and rightfully so because of how they rushed right into this. And so they wanted to go attack the people. But thankfully, the leaders of Israel, Joshua included, said, no, we're not going to do that. Because even though we shouldn't have entered into this covenant, we have entered into it. And we've done it in the name of the Lord, our God. And if we break that covenant, we're inviting God's wrath upon us. And so they lived with the consequences of their mistake and they did not add to that by sinning even more. And sometimes though, I'm afraid that that we fall into that. We're experiencing the consequences of a decision that we make. And then our reaction to those consequences, we end up sinning even more and adding more sin on top of what has already been done. You know, one of the more obvious examples of this concerns the covenant of marriage. And sometimes people will say, you know what, I I shouldn't have entered into this covenant of marriage with this individual. Uh, It was a wrong decision. It was a foolish decision. This person wasn't the right fit for me. Or sometimes they might even say, well, this person uh, I married was not a believer. Uh, He wasn't a believer. She wasn't a believer. I should have never married them. And so the only way for me to fix this is, is to divorce this person and to get out of that marriage relationship. Now, it's true that if you're a believer and the person that you married was not a believer at the time that you got married, then you should not have married them. The Bible is very clear about that. It says not to be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. But the Bible also says this, once we have made that decision and once we have entered into that marriage covenant, we should not then divorce that individual. In fact, God's word instructs the believer to remain in that marriage and to pray that through your influence that that person might end up coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, no, we add to that sin when we end up breaking that marriage covenant that we have made. We're we're called to honor the Lord by honoring our spouse and remaining in that marriage covenant that we have made before God. And so many other situations like that, where we've acted foolishly, we've made a sinful choice in the past, and yet the Lord is telling us, don't add to that sin. Honor the Lord, even as you walk through that difficult time. Again, there's so much to learn from the Israelites in this story because so often, more often, I think than we'd like to admit, we are very much like them. But I believe we can also learn from the other set of characters in this story because I also believe, church, that we are the Gibeonites. Now, before I get into that, you know, I I really believe the hero of every story in the Bible is God himself. And God is the hero of this story. Because as you read this story, it's amazing to me that, that, that God works in this story for his own sovereign good purposes, even though the Israelites acted foolishly, even though the Gibeonites were acting deceptively, God overruled all of that and ended up accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish anyway. And we're going to see next week that God uses this treaty with the Gibeonites that should have never been made in order to set up a situation where Joshua was able to defeat five kings of Canaan at the very same time and took a major step forward in taking the promised land that God had given to them. Concerning the Gibeonites themselves, while there is some debate about this, I really believe that God had a redemptive purpose in this story. You know, in some ways, I think the story of the Gibeonites is similar to the story of Rahab that we met back in Joshua chapter 2. Because just like God saved Rahab out of the middle of the city of Jericho, a city that had been set apart for destruction, God saves the Gibeonites here out of the middle of the land of Canaan, a land that had been devoted from destruction, and he saves them. Now, sure, perhaps their uh, statement of faith wasn't as clear as that of Rahab's. Again, we can't tell for sure whether they're being sincere or flattering Joshua when they praise the Lord, but but nonetheless, I would say this, that it's clear from what they said to Joshua that the reason that they came and even concocted this charade is because they at least had the fear of God in their hearts. They believed what God had said, that he would give his people the land, that he would drive out the inhabitants. They believed that God had the power to do it. And it's because they believe that, that they were willing to risk their lives to come to Joshua and try to fool him in signing a treaty. It shows that at least on some level, they had fear of God. And I want you to notice this also. Did you, did you notice when Joshua curses them to a life of servitude, where he says that they're going to end up serving? Look again at verse 23. It says, now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Look at verse 27, it says the same thing. In that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. So they were going to serve the people of God generally, but more specifically, they were going to serve in the house of God, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so listen to this, God's assignment to this Hivite, Canaanite group of people to serve the Lord, his assignment to them was to serve the Lord where they would be right around the word of God, right around the house of God, right around the worship of God all the days of their life. And because of that, I believe as time went on that they did come to a true and sincere faith in the Lord. And I think the rest of Scripture bears that out. Because as we keep reading our Bibles, you're going to find out that hundreds of years after this, King David ends up putting the tabernacle right there in their city, in the city of Gibeon, where the worship of God was located for many, many years. And then 500 years after that, when the people of God were hauled off to captivity in Babylon, after that time of captivity was over and people were given that option and that call to come back to Jerusalem and to help rebuild it. And we read a list of people in the book of Ezra who came back to Jerusalem. Guess who's included among that list of people who came back? The Gibeonites. And then Nehemiah even tells us that when it was time to rebuild the wall, it was some of the men of Gibeon who picked up their spade and their shovel and helped to rebuild the wall all around the city of Jerusalem. And I just love that our God is like this, that in his great grace, he used a treaty which was deceptively created And yet he worked in and through that so that some of these Canaanite people, these Hivite people would end up becoming a blessing to the people of God, would end up becoming a part of the people of God. People who had been devoted to destruction ended up being saved and included in the covenant of God's salvation. What an awesome God we serve. In church, hopefully we can see it, but in many ways, we are like the Gibeonites. And in fact, I would say this, we need to be like the Gibeonites if we also want to be included in that covenant of salvation. Here's the first way we need to be like them. We need to realize that we are under God's wrath and we are condemned to die. Again, that's what they realize, isn't it? They realize God has given his people this land. All the inhabitants of this land have been condemned to die. And it was because they realized, because they understood that, that they were willing to come to Joshua and try to make this covenant. We need to realize that or we will never be saved. We need to realize that we have all sinned against God. That because of our sin, the sentence of death is upon us. And what we deserve is the righteous judgment of God. In John 3, we read this. We read, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But listen, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So because of our sin, until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, until we come to the son, we are under the wrath of God. And the only future that we have to look forward to is a future of judgment and destruction. And until we realize that, we'll never come to Jesus. So we need to do the first step, the first thing they realize. I'm under the wrath of God. I deserve the judgment of God. And then number two, we need to do what they did. We must come to the only person who can save us and cast ourselves on his mercy. Oh, it was a desperate ploy on their part, but they thought that the only way that they could be saved was if we go to Joshua and pretend like we live in a distant country. Now, I mentioned earlier in this series that actually the name Joshua and the name Jesus are the very same name. Both names mean the Lord, our salvation. And we have to come to our greater Joshua. We have to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, our salvation, and cast ourselves upon his mercy. And realize that the only way anyone can be saved is if we come to Christ. If we accept what he did for our sins when he hung on that cross and suffered in our place. And what he did when he rose again from the dead on the third day. When we come to him, not deceptively, but authentically. And we come and we ask him to forgive us of our sins. It is only then that we will find mercy and grace. And when we come to him, he will receive us. He will not cast us out. I love what it says in John 6, all that the father has given me will come to me. And listen, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Maybe there's someone who is here today who that's exactly where you are and that's exactly the step you need to take. On this day, You need to come to Jesus. And when you come to him in faith, when you come to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will never cast you out. You become his child both now and for all eternity. This is the grace of God. And then lastly, what a privilege it is that after God saves us through faith in his son, Jesus, we get to serve the one who saved us and we get to be counted among the people of God. the sentence that the Gibeonites received for their deception was to be servants of Joshua and servants of the people of God. Well, you know what? When we come to faith in Jesus and we become a part of God's people, our identity now, we get to say with the apostle Paul, I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how glad, how joyful should we be that we get to be bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we get to serve the one who saved our lives and saved our souls. I know that the tasks that they were given were menial tasks, cutting wood and, and, and carrying water. You know, I, I really don't care what the task is that God gives me as long as I get to serve my God. I, I love the verse so much in Psalm 84. I think about it every time I pass by our greeters out in the lobby where it says this, the psalmist writes, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Christian, whatever God has called you to do to serve him, serve him joyfully, knowing that you're serving your greater Joshua, the Lord, your salvation, who has saved your soul. And he saved you and he saved me, not because he was tricked into it. He saved us because of his great love for us. Because he loved us with a love that is greater than we can fathom, he was willing to go to the cross, to die for us, and to rise again. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you today for your word. And Father, how living and how active it is. And Father, how we can read a story from thousands of years ago. And yet, Father, it applies so directly to our lives right now. Lord, many of us look back in our lives and and maybe even the past several weeks and months and years. And Father, we can think of many decisions that we made that were foolish that were sinful decisions, that were decisions where we did not seek you and what your word had to say, but we just did what was right in our own eyes. Father, we confess that to you. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness, for your healing, for your grace and mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that you do forgive. Father, we pray that as people who have been saved by your mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege to spend our lives and our eternity serving the one who saved us. Father, we love you because you first loved us. And so, Lord, even this week, whatever you have given us to do, whatever we find in our hand to do, we want to do it with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Father, we want to love you in the things that we do as we serve you. God, what a privilege it is to serve our King. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.